Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, the internet's busiest music nerd, and it's time for another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, where we interview content creators and artists from across the globe and the internet. In this episode, it is singer-songwriter Marissa Nadler. She has a new album coming out titled Strangers in May on Sacred Bones Records. We talk with her about this record, the songwriting process, her upcoming tour, and the interview is conducted by contributor Jeremy Fissett. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Um, all right, so yeah, I will just dive right in to our conversation today. Um, first off, I wanted to ask, uh, just because I've been curious since I've been listening to the new record, um, how does it feel to be sitting on a new record sort of like a month in advance of it being released? Like, And you can't, like it's not out in the world yet, but you kinda, you're still touring about it? Like, How does that feel? Well, it's ex- you know, it's exciting so far because the feedback has been really good, and I just arrived in Portland, Oregon, to start band practice, and so I have some distraction now. Like, you know, I'm focusing on other stuff, which I think is a good thing because it can be hard to just kind of be in stasis waiting for something. Yeah, that's because I, I was. That's what I was curious about. Like, so, like some people don't tour in the lead up to the album, so I'm always curious if they're just like sitting around waiting for it to come out, um, and that must be such a strange feeling. I feel like. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, I've been listening to the record uh, "Strangers." I think it's really great. Um, oh, th- you're welcome. I think it's so good. Um, I was a huge fan of July as well, and so. I've been sort of, I don't know if I want to say inevitably, but sort of without trying, I've been drawing these parallels between them. So I wanted to sort of ask if there was like a conscious decision to have this relate at all to July, or do you not think it relates at all to July? I mean, it definitely, it can't help but relate sonically because it has the same producer and the same studio, same microphone, for the most part, a lot of the same musicians as well. So there's a stylistic tie. Um, mm-hmm. The records are, are are very different in some ways. Like July is very realist and um, Strangers is more surreal. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I, I definitely saw that, yeah. Um, even Especially lyrically, it's uh, very... It's almost like July was very intimate and very personal and it felt, I mean, obviously I could be wrong, but it felt like the personal pronouns were mostly your pronouns Mm -hmm. here. That definitely doesn't feel like the case anymore, at least not all the time. Yeah. Um, And there was something about like, um, I was, I've been describing it to myself as if July was sort of like the crisis moment itself, then this album is sort of like after that like it's sort of the unsettled aftermath and so it feels very perplexing and um almost like apocalyptic in a way it feels very desolate like all these characters and and there's a lot of things moving in and out of frame yeah definitely i think um well the record kind of at first loosely i was Drawn, drawing a lot of comparisons to a, having a dream about the end of the world. And a lot of the songs um, detail this kind of calm after the storm. So it's not really dealing with the actual action, but more the aftermath. 
Yeah, that's kind of how I felt too. And I was going to ask you about the characters in it because there are a lot of named people throughout the story. Um, and I mean, you've worked with that before for basically all of your albums. There's always been some named characters um, that kind of weave in and out. But this time, they they at least by name, they're new. So I was kind of wondering about that too. Yeah, you know, to call so these people in the songs are for the most part real people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting because, for instance, Janie and in Love is a very personal song that kind of details me comparing like watching a friend fall head over heels in love over and over again, kind of comparing it to this kind of. St- stasis and it, it it is about someone real and then Katie I know also kind of about a friendship so it, but I kind of like that songs can be influenced by real life and real people but at the same time have like a more macro meaning yeah and I would I would I think I felt that way too as I listened because um I would assume that most of them are at least at least somewhat based on real people, but there's definitely this sort of otherworldly quality to it. And I think it's totally true that you can have music that's very personal, but it's sort of shot through this lens of the surreal. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of how I felt about um, this record. Lyrically and sonically too, though, because I feel like it's also your most sonically intricate um, in a while, like at least since Little Hells, because I remember when Little Hells came out, um, there was a lot of new little details that were kind of cropping up along the edges of the songs. And then July was so subdued in a way. And then Strangers uh, has a lot of these nice little touches. Um, did you arrange all of those or, or did the no. instrumentalists do? I, when I, I, the demo process for this record was really long. I mm. kind of felt a lot of pressure in some ways after July because it had kind of resurrected my, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean... It, it seemed like things picked up after that a little bit. And so I felt, and I had these great labels all of a sudden, and I certainly had paid my, like, tour and put out a lot of records. So I was really grateful to have a platform. So, so I felt a lot of pressure to write a record as good or better. And that's sometimes, it's you know, that's that can be hard. So one of my... I set up a lot of guidelines for myself, and one of them was to not write songs that reminded me of songs I'd already written, which fair enough. Um, <laughs> and also, I was writing for a band like in mind. Like when I wrote Janie in Love, I was I thought to myself, "This is gonna have instrumentation." So a lot of the demos have a, most of the instrumentation lines, like all the colors of the dark, for instance had that string line as a synthesizer. And so Mm. I wrote a lot of the instrumental lines, but then the instrumentalists kind of took what the ideas I put down and grew off of them. Um, And so when I first started writing songs, I really never, I was so concerned with the lyric and the melody and the guitar. I didn't really think about the other layers for the first few records. Yeah, and that's kind of another thing I was going to ask. Did these demos, for the most part, um, start as solo songs, or can you play them all solo? Uh, Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now, actually. (laughs) I'm I'm having band practice today in Portland, and then... Mm -hmm. I'm, but then I'm going on tour with Black Mountain solo. So some of the songs are going to sound really different alone. 
Mm-hmm. Like Janie and Love, I, I'm still trying to kind of figure out how to do it justice as a solo song. Yeah, because the chorus um, especially has that giant squall of noise. Uh-huh. Um, it's just, which is so, you know, it's so, it seems so fresh because um, a lot of your records have been very stripped down and subdued, especially coming after July. These songs um, here on Strangers with these giant noisy passages um, are kind of a nice surprise. So I'd be interested to see how they would translate into a solo song. Yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> I hope that, I mean, I think they'll definitely sound really different. I'm probably going to have to go pedal shopping, get myself a rat pedal oh. and just go for it and not be afraid to be loud when I'm alone too. Because I wanted to just, finally, I wrote songs thinking, okay, this is going to have a rhythm section. I want to tour with a band and sometimes, and I have that ability to have, to have, like some jammy moments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is your whole tour going to be solo right now? No. So uh, there's a lot of tours coming up. But, like there's this, I'm just going on tour on the West Coast of Black Mountain. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of going to get my feet wet again because I'm kind of hermetic and I haven't been playing since I got home from Ju- the July tour. So it's kind of a good way to get warmed up. Um, but then the, all the rest of the touring is going to be with band. Actually, this band, Wreckmeister Harmonies, um, on Thrill Jockey, is going to be opening for me and then also um, adding to my backing band. Oh, okay. It's going to be pretty cool. Like It'll be very ambient. and They're, they're good because they have a combination of ambient and heavy, which is kind of what Randall Dunn can bring to the table as a producer. So mm-hmm. I have high hopes for like the translation live. Yeah, I was going to ask about working with Randall Dunn because this is the second time you've worked with him um, and also the second album you've done on Sacred Bones. Um, what, how, how did that transition come about from uh, Box of Cedar, your own label, into Sacred Bones? I was, um, you know, self-releasing has a lot of pros and I definitely support people that do it. And it was good for me at the time but I was spending a lot of time just like on the business side of things and music was becoming work and kind of took a break for a while but then Sacred Bones and Bella Union kind of came up at the same time I kind of decided that I wanted to try to get a label again and I Sacred Bones had written Caleb had written me years ago and I'm kind of a space cadet like I didn't (laughs) I didn't really I'm not too cued in on the indie music scene so I wasn't really aware at the time when he wrote me how cool that label was I'm just oblivious and then I was like oh shit wow <laughs> same with Kelly so you know it all kind of fell into place around the same time and Randall had written me on Facebook and we had mutual friends from my early days of like I kind of started out and came full circle with this the kind of underground um, darker scene because my first booking agent booked Earth and um, Boris and, and me, mm. which seemed like at the time like I stood <laughs> out like a sore thumb in some ways, but it made sense in others. So I already knew Randall a little, um, mm. and I wrote him back like, "Let's do it." I wanted to make sure that when I that it had a change. Um, he's great to work with. We're friends, and it's 
he's dark and <laughs> likes the same kind of music I do. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it's a, a very symbiotic relationship. And you can hear a marked change in the production from um, the self-titled and into July. Um, so I'm sure that that had something to do with that. There's definitely a darker kind of thicker sound to these records. Yeah. And you know, I love, like, I loved working with Brian McTeer also, um, in Philadelphia who did several other of my early records, but it just felt like a time for trying something new and it wasn't anything like, I really love Brian and his production mm-hmm. too. It just kind of, it was in a darker place emotionally and I wanted the music to kind of match the content. And are you, uh, <laughs> are you planning to continue the collaboration with Randall Dunn? Yeah, I'm actually going to be recording in August after a bunch of touring um, an EP. Okay. So, um, I we've talked about doing a Beach Boys cover of the song "Till I Die," which I really want to do. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds great. That actually sort of brings me to another question I had. Um, you do. You've done a lot of covers. You have a few cover record volumes. Um, I was just going to ask kind of what draws you to making them at all and how you pick the ones that you end up covering. Yeah, I mean, I just love singing songs that I like. So, And I taught myself how to record kind of by doing, you know, doing my demos and also the covers. Uh, those volumes are kind of like I've let them... I, for a while, I was selling them on Etsy, and then I realized I probably wasn't supposed to be selling cover songs. <laughs> that was stupid. And so now um, I kind of just put them up for free on SoundCloud. And I, it's just fun because you can try different styles. Like my, I think the Black Sabbath cover from this year was my favorite one I've ever done. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that one that came out. Yeah, like. It's my first time I've ever really done like lead electric guitar mm. as opposed to rhythm, and it was it really opened some doors for me in terms of like how much space I can get away with having in a song. I don't need to be tethered to this constant ri- um, rhythm. Mm-hmm. So that it's just fun. I mean, I'd like to do a re- actual professionally recorded covers record at some time, but then again, I'm torn because I don't want to be known as like someone that does covers when I'm, I'd rather, you know, be known as a songwriter. Yeah. I mean, you've done them before. I mean, they've even been included on your LPs a couple times, like especially a uh, famous blue raincoat. Um, so I feel like there is sort of that stigma, though, of the songwriter who just plays covers. And obviously, that's not who you would be. But if you put out a whole covers record, I guess it's possible people might think that. But I also feel like you could just kind of squeeze them in. Um, And you can play them live. Seven albums of original material warrant me to be able to, like, at least get away with one covers record that isn't recorded on my internal microphone on my (laughs) MacBook. But um, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. all right, so since we're talking about um, your projects that are not in your main discography, I was I wanted to really ask about the Mountain Home record um, because I, I love that record and I think it's so lovely and pretty and I feel like no one knows about it and I feel like that's so such a crime. So I just wanted to ask how that record came to be. Well, that's a long, that's like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, just... So I was recording, I recorded songs three with Greg Weeks and Espers, mm. and I was hanging out in Philly a, a lot, and 
Joshua in Mountain Home and his girlfriend at the time, Kristen, had this band Mountain Home and they just they were recording at Greg Weeks's stu- basement studio and asked me to sing some sing. I thought they meant like do a backup vocal here and there. <laughs> Turned out they wanted me to sing the whole thing, and I was like, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> and um, it was fun. I, I kind of, we never performed it live. They're not together anymore. The band isn't together. But I do think it's kind of a nice, it is a really beautiful record. I think Greg was a very talented producer. Um, yeah, it's he very. do that anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it's very pretty and spacious, and um, it just feels like this nice little time capsule almost. Yeah, it's certainly more tratty than I like. Uh, you know mm. what I mean by that? Like, yeah. it's definitely really influenced by traditional folk in a way that I am not really. But um, I really did like it, and I it's a nice memory you've brought back. <laughs> to me. um, so, what's it? What is, what's the difference between singing covers and then singing songs that other people have written and are asking you to sing for them? Well, it's different with the with the collaborations or guest vocals that I've been doing, now that I've kind of been chipping away for so many years, people are giving me a lot of license kind of to do what I want. And Mm. that's nice because I really enjoy layering vocals and doing harmonies and writing these little arrangements. Um, With cover songs, sometimes I do feel like I am a little bit of a, I don't tend to, change the songs too much because if a song is something that I like enough to cover I usually just want to kind of pay homage to it and mm-hmm. um, you know give it my own interpretation but also not like change the melody too much so it's like less creative in some ways although it doesn't have to be I mean the solitude cover was a drastic reinterpretation so mm-hmm. yeah I think some people um it kind of fall in the two camps, like the one camp of if it's such a good song already, then I'm not, you know, I'm not going to change it too much. But then I think other people almost take it too far in the other direction. And then, you know, sometimes you lose the essence of the original song, which is what inspired you to cover it in the first place. Yeah. I mean, there are certain songs I'd never cover just because like, if I love a song a lot, I like, I would never cover Wicked Game. um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because well, fuck, like, it's perfect, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's certain things I know I could just not do. Like, I kind of avoid covering Joni Mitchell songs because yeah. she's like, what can I do? What can anyone do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so aside from uh, music, you also have been doing visual art for a while, and I've read that you generally see visual art as being kind of more private and music is kind of a little bit less private. Um, so I kind of just wanted to ask what, if that's the case, then what inspired you to do your own animated video for all the colors of the dark? Yeah. Um, I've been really interested in filmmaking and for a long time, but I never really did it. I was an illustration major. So mostly my backgrounds in painting and drawing. Hmm. So I just started to teach myself claymation a couple of years ago and found it very fun. And I got the go-ahead to make my own video from the labels, which I was really <laughs> excited about because I don't want the art to be so private. It's just I'm really a perfectionist, and I guess I have like higher, a really high stakes. I want to do more of it. I want to make it a lifelong pursuit, and it's never you're never too old to start learning something new. No, of course not. Um, 
do you are you making more videos for the album like personally yes i oh, cool. am well right now i'm working on f finishing up the video for Janie and love um but then I'm going to make two. I want to, I kind of, I'm very ambitious. I want to make a video for every song. I'm gonna <laughs> and then like make a DVD. But yeah. the thing is that all the colors of the dark video took forever. Like mm -hmm. every, all that little claymation stuff. It's like 200 photographs for what, one 15 second passage of a movement. So mm -hmm. you really have to be like crazy to get into that in the first place yeah i mean i come from a filmmaking background too so i definitely know a lot about the struggles of stop motion mm -hmm. and how it's it's it just takes so much patience and persistence i don't understand how people make you know two-hour movies every three years like I, I don't understand how they do it they have teams they do have teams <laughs> that's true um okay so I'm trying to under, I'm trying to see how I want to pivot this conversation. So you're based out of Boston, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So I was wondering if you could tell me and listeners what the art scene is like in Boston. I would have no idea. <laughs> I'm like a real hermit. I mean, oh, okay. It's well, I think Boston is a great place to live, but I'm just not like a real networker type. Like I, all the stuff that I do requires me to be alone to do it, and mm -hmm. so. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are artists, and there's certainly a ton of great bands that have come out of Boston and a lot of great bands coming out of Western Mass, but I really have to be honest that I keep to myself <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I probably would too. I just wanted to ask because you always hear about, especially for music, you hear about New York and LA, but also like Chicago and Baltimore a lot these days, and you don't hear about Boston too much, and I, and I, there, I just thought there has to be a, a scene there there is like I, I think there's a big scene in western mass because you know mm. dinosaur jr came from there and like even nowadays like bands like speedy ortiz came from okay. there but then um in boston you have bands like quilt and um mm -hmm. i mean i have and damon and naomi live there from galaxy oh, okay. 500 they're friends of mine and glenn jones the finger-picking wizard is a really good friend of mine. <laughs> so, like, there are musicians, but I, I'm just, like, I've never really... I'm kind of a loner in terms of, like... Because uh, I'm not in a band, really, so... Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I was just curious about that, because it isn't... It, I mean, you just named all these people that people do know of, but for some reason, Boston is always kind of left out of the conversation. Maybe that'll change, you know? Um, enough bands keep coming out of Boston. It's a real rock town though. Mm. So like I've always felt like I'm not folky enough for like the, <laughs> the folk crowd because I'm not like purist and tra traditional mm -hmm. and I love reverb and like distortion mm -hmm. and then I'm not like obviously not a rock band so I it's hard to sometimes find that niche. Yeah and now you're sort of in between those two worlds with this record too because you mm -hmm. have a lot more rock elements on this record. Yeah. Um, so when did you, uh, I wanted to ask, when did you start playing music then if you were primarily visual art? Uh, when I was about 13, so 13, hmm. 14, my older brother had a guitar and I just thought it was cool. So I kind of, <laughs> he showed me a few chords and I taught myself a lot of the rest. And mm -hmm. I was really into um Learning Bob Dylan songs on the guitar, but also like 
grunge rock was huge when I was growing up, so I was learning Hole and Nirvana <laughs> and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if so, then how did that kind of lead to a career in music? When I was at art school, I just it got really much more serious about songwriting when I was about eighteen. Um, I just maybe was feeling stressed out about the pressure I was putting on myself to become this paint, you know, painter. Mm-hmm. Of, like I, RISD is such a competitive environment, and everybody's so talented that it can be kind of a disillusion, disenchanting, or whatever mm. the word is. Because yeah. I just started to kind of turn to my music more as a form of meditation and um because i the art, fine art was becoming a job or a homework mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i started to open mic nights i mean i'm still i still have stage fright but i really like i always did i'm just kind of a little shy and um i always did some open mic nights at bars and then started playing little clubs and i just really enjoy writing songs i still do which is great news (laughs) yeah no it's good that you haven't uh, been disillusioned by that yet Mm -hmm. um which is interesting because now music is your job which is sort of (laughs) what was like almost uh pushing you away from visual art but i wonder if you had gone to school for music if you would have ended up being a painter i probably would (laughs) there's something really fun about not being a trained musician because i approach the guitar like Every time I pick it up, I learn something new, and that's, I know that sounds really kind of cheesy, like, oh, <laughs> but it, it's true. I, I'm still just learning, at, and I don't think I'll ever stop, which I think is fun. I mean, I kind of, my next goal is to just really be shredding. <laughs> Um, speaking of shredding, um, just to interject, did, uh, is that you shredding a lot on the new album? <laughs> I play in guitar, and but the distortion wall that is on "Hungry Is the Ghost" mm. is not me. That is Milky. Um, oh. That's his name. And okay. He's just a great. He did second guitar. Um, he has a really good handle over walls of distortion, mm-hmm. which I'm. Yeah, so it's a combination. What about the uh, like acidic guitar leak on the title track? On strangers. That's Milky playing, but I wrote the melody. Mm. So I wrote it on a synth line. And then oh, okay. kind of was like, so the demos, which I'll probably release at some point this year, um, are you can, it's pretty interesting because you can hear all the licks. But like, I'm kind of, if I think that somebody like Milky could bring a better tone than I could, I'm not, I don't really have anything to prove. Like, yeah. At this point, I'm just kind of like, go for it, because we ha- it's a nice collaborative effort in some ways when you're in a studio. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're working with a band, it's I'm, I would assume that it would be uh, nice to just kind of let them do their thing sometimes, because, I mean, you invited them or asked them or, you know, corralled them all to play, beca- probably because you think they're very good, so, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just let them do their own thing i mean like the distortion wall and hungry is the ghost i mean you didn't do it but that's that's okay like that's him you you had him on your album yeah exactly like i've i had so many records just me yeah <laughs> like after the seven there's countless albums i just never or like songs i've never put out so it's just you get to a point where you want to do a lot you want to collaborate and experiment keep yeah. it real and fresh yeah um, 
And so speaking of those demos, um, I did, I read that for July, you planned the melodies with the intent of harmonizing with them, which is kind of why the harmonies were so important to that record. Um, did you do that this time around? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you listen to the demos, they sound a lot like the final record, except ex there's no drums and there, mm -hmm. but the harmonies were, were also, it's like, but, um, I think it started with July when I started considering harmony as part of the song and not an afterthought. So like two voices become one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, a, there's, I don't know if there's more or less harmony than on July, but there's certainly uh, around the same amount. And I guess, I think it has that same feeling because a lot of times harmonies feel like, you know, accessories. And I don't think that's the case here. Good, yeah. I, I had <laughs> consciously cut down on it because, you know, if you do it too much, it loses its power. Like you mm -hmm. can't. Sometimes there's there's something nothing more striking than a solitary voice crooning, or <laughs> and you don't want to drown that power out, like of the lonesome voice. So mm -hmm. I actually had to be conscious, like don't overdo it with the harmonies, girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are there are certain moments. Uh, certain songs when there aren't any and it seems very purposeful that there aren't any kind of like on dissolve or holiday in from the last record um because there aren't too many songs that have no harmonies but nothing on either of those yeah yeah it's they're both very stripped um and sometimes i mean you sometimes it's all you really need <laughs> yeah like actually my demo for dissolve was more built up than the album version like i had oh, these wow. doo-woppy motown background <laughs> vocals and i loved them but randall was like you don't need it and we fought but and, and now i'm so glad i listened to him because it doesn't <laughs> need it i mean it's it you don't need harmonies on everything um <laughs> yeah will those be on the demos if you release them <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, oh. I, I want people to hear them because I, I have this love for lo-fi mm -hmm. also. I kind of love both like early, crunchy, demo-sounding things and really nicely recorded stuff. So I think a lot of people would like that. Yeah, I would be very interested to hear how a song like Dissolve can, would sound with more uh, like meat to it because uh -huh. it is such a stripped song. Um but there are a lot of moments on the record where you have just like a single sonic touch. Um, like uh, specifically, I was thinking of the opening track, Divers in the Dust. There's, I think there's one moment of brushed cymbals. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was just wondering how, how, like, what is your thought pattern behind those? Like, why don't you, why did, why is there only one or how do you choose which spot to put those kind of little flourishes into? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like a give and take with, listening to ideas that Randall has or Divers of the Dust I wrote on guitar with it and it actually sounded more like an early Elliott Smith track before mm. I went in the studio with a down strum like really fast strum and I don't I'm really much better of a fingerstyle guitar player than a strummer so I kind of wanted to try a different instrument um, so this mm. piano and it kind of just sounded so good without a lot of stuff so the mm -hmm. we just purposefully held back because we wanted it to be this barren wasteland uh, desolate scene setting song where it would kind of suck you in yeah and i definitely think that it it gets that and that one brushed symbol is is enough it just like it's just that one little one little you know like slip in the your crack in the in the pavement mm -hmm. um 
So I'm probably going to start uh, going on thin ice to ask you to explain a song, but mm -hmm. there is one that I really, really wanted to ask you about that um, seems to be perplexing me the most. Um, the song Shadow Show Diane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just was wondering if you could tell us a little about that song and how that came to me, what your inspiration was for it. Yeah, that's a weird one. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well... The, the record kind of bounces back and forth between real life and dream life and and surrealism and realism. And that's definitely a moment of realism where it's actually like I live on a triple in a triple decker in Jamaica Plain in Boston where you can see into other people's windows. And like mm. um, I certainly don't like make a hobby out of <laughs> out of being a voyeur. It's it just I got this. I don't know. I think I was out on the porch and I accidentally like saw um, something I wasn't supposed to see <laughs> in silhouette. And I, I joke, jokingly said to my, um, I was like, that is a shadow show. And I liked <laughs> the way that sounded. But then I'm like, I kind of made up this whole story in my head about the woman across the hall, uh, across the street that I could see her silhouette like mm -hmm. and called her shadow show Diane and then the song is actually kind of just about like kind of quiet moments of me watching time pass and um as I kind of voyeuristically observe other people's lives because there's mm -hmm. definitely this feeling I've always had as kind of like an outsider or it's not that I romanticize being that way but I just can't help help it and mm -hmm. that song kind of feels like the quintessential outset you're looking at <laughs> life from like a, a porch into somebody else's life so it's in other words it's actually a very literal song <laughs> it sure is yeah and uh, more literal than they let on um yeah and shadow show diane is the other person it's the person who you're watching yeah like oh see i took it as the watcher <laughs> no like so shadow oh. show Maybe I should have put a comma in there. Or no, Shadow Show Diane is like her title. Uh, yeah, that's okay. That makes sense. Like if she ha was in a beauty pageant, that's what <laughs> would be on her sash. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, because I listened to that, um, you know, the first time I was listening through and it really caught me off guard because it, it, you know, it does sound like it is meant to be taken literally, but... I just almost didn't want to. I was like, there has to be some other layer here. Hello. Yeah. Um, but then as I listened to it more, um, I don't know. There's something so alluring about it. Like, and there's something so, I don't know, like dark about it. It is a creepy song. Actually, <laughs> you know, Stephen O'Malley uh, from Sunno, he, he's a friend of mine and he, he wrote me about that song. Also, <laughs> he like, cause it's definitely not like a standout single or anything, but it might be one of the weirder songs I've ever written. Um, he was like, I like your voyeuristic poems is what he said. <laughs> that's funny yeah no because it, it it does maybe it's not a single but it definitely sticks out for that reason um and it is also for other reasons it is also one of the strummed songs um which mm -hmm. kind of you know asserts itself a little bit at the beginning yeah um and so speaking of narrators the other big question i had about the record was that the narrators seem to shift a lot um and i don't know if that's true or if i'm just reading into it too much but there is a lot of um you know, difference. There's there's a lot of references to things changing, and then there's a lot of references to things not changing. 
And so I was kind of curious about that dichotomy. I know. I noticed that too. It kind of <laughs> like, eh, I guess that's life. I mean, like some things never change, and mm-hmm. but everything does. I, that makes no sense. How wishy-washy of me. Um, <laughs> you know, like nothing feels the same. For instance, that song, like on track side B, it's very much like uh, about how about not finding joy in the little things anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the songs just have a micro and a macro meaning. Like, sure, I kind of envision that song as somebody walking along after the world has ended and, like, they look for their house and there's, like, bird tracks and mm. and all this, like, kind of desolate stuff. But also it, it's kind of a depression anthem, I guess. <laughs> A lot of this, like, Hungry as the Ghost certainly is, uh, like, that kind of anthemic uh, ode to emptiness. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like this, uh, you know, this big, yeah, almost like an ode, like a big epic, almost celebratory song, but it's about something that's, like, very uh, downcast. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting contrast. Um, what band is that? Is it the... The, the cure mm, yeah sorry go on <laughs> <laughs> just thinking about other bands that like, have these like gigantic odes to really horrible things like um you know <laughs> yeah no i mean it's definitely something that i've uh been drawn to in the past i mean even like one of the first uh bands i ever got into was rilo kylie and uh Jenny Lewis writes about like these utterly depressing things and then she'll sing them in this chirpy way. Yeah. So I've been kind of drawn to that my whole life, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you say that nothing feels the same is uh, sort of like after it's kind of like after the end of the world, which I mean, we all have this vision of the end of the world and it never seems to actually include the world no longer being there. It's always still there. You know, like all these post-apocalypse uh, books and movies and, and TV shows, they all still have the world. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of liked the idea that, especially at the last two songs, it actually does sort of seem to be going away. Because like Dissolve, I I sort of take that sort of literally too. Like it's kind of the last moment. Like you're just like leaving and that's it. Yeah, that song I'm still trying to make. Um, it has a ton of different meanings. Mm. It it kind of reminded me after I wrote it and, you know, that Sybil Bear record mm-hmm. tonight. Um, oh, yeah. It kind of, like, reminded me. There was, like, one, it reminded me a little bit of that same theme where it it's actually, like, switching back and forth for this, this these dreams and that's, like, kind of, I mean, originally Waking was supposed to be the last song in the record in my head because it was like waking up from that Mm. Wizard of Oz-esque journey. But then I decided to not hold so tight to the idea of a concept album because it's Mm -hmm. very limiting and I wanted each song to be its own identity and stand on its own. Yeah, and I I definitely think that's the case. I mean, there's a through line, but it's not too rigid and you could in theory you could change the sequencing like in a live setting for example and it's not like the meeting is gone you know and i think sometimes the strict concept album that might happen you kind of feel like you have to play it in sequence every time yeah and i didn't want that i want to like make songs that people can enjoy on their own terms yeah 
And I, yeah, I think that's definitely come across. Um, so yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. I wanted to ask one last thing about the, um, the union pool show. Um, I will be there. Um, I'm very excited. I'm very excited for that. Um, so I'll I be alone for that one. Oh, so you'll be solo for that. I was going to ask. I'll be yeah. interested in that. Have you, I mean, it's not necessarily, but then I'm playing New York like again, um, later that summer later this summer with a full band so okay are you doing an are you doing an east coast tour later this year yeah it has they're gonna announce the date soon but it's okay an epic tour i'll (laughs) hopefully i'll be able to get through it without (laughs) (laughs) um yeah because i'd be interested then to see this album being toured solo and then to come back around in a few months and see it with the band that'd be uh that'd be pretty fun actually yeah um, and I've never been to Union Pool, so I don't even know if they're like, are they too small to accommodate a band? <laughs> no, no, it's, um, they have bands all the time, but I, mm. it, like the idea for that was just for me to, because I've been off the road for a while and I have a history mm-hmm. of stage fright, um, <laughs> to kind of really ease myself back in so that I don't like, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. go freak out. Cause it's just, it, it the idea was kind of. I actually enjoy playing when I can feel like I can, my voice is filling the room. I, I kind of like small rooms, mm-hmm. cozy yeah. places, um, less intimidating. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the only time I actually have seen you perform once, and it was when you opened for Y Oak in Connecticut, um, which mm-hmm. was a few years ago. At like um, theater, yeah. Yeah, it was at a theater, and so the natural reverb of the space was so beautiful. And I remember it was—I think it was just you. You might have had a cellist or something. Uh-huh. Um, but that was, yeah. It was—it—it it is really um, kind of—it ca- really holds you captive when it's just like a single person singing out into a spacious um, room. So I am sort of now that you know. Now that you told me that you are being solo at the album release show uh i'm sort of looking forward to that even more oh good Um, well i'll try my best (laughs) (laughs) so yeah for um anyone who doesn't know that's at union pool in brooklyn on may 18th and um mary latimer is opening that's correct yeah yeah i looked her stuff up too she's she's her music's very very beautiful she she's a harpist yeah she it sure is beautiful she plays with a like ton of great people um i mm. think she, she's played with kurt vile and like i know her just from like my philly connections and um okay i wanted something really soothing for, <laughs> for myself yeah. too because uh is you know the new york shows are a little bit of pressure just cause mm-hmm. it's like people reviewing it and not you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm sure you'll be great. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we um, will post this on the YouTube channel, and we will link in the description box to uh, so the listeners know we're gonna link to all the info about your new album and your tour, um, and you know any more information that we need to put in there. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's really fun.